So lightning around, yes or no, have you ever named a name in your public teaching in your church? So yes, yes. Yes. Yes, wrote a book. Oh, yes. 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 And just to get the weight of things, is this something you're doing weekly, monthly, yearly, once a decade? I mean, just ballpark it here. As it comes up in the text. I've only done it once, and that was in that case specific to coming so to much. our area. Yeah. Okay. In general, I don't like to mention the names of false teachers because people remember them, and they don't remember whether they were bad or good. And so unless there's a specific pastoral reason for addressing a person, I won't mention the name. So even if I'm criticizing a, a position of a theologian that's errant, I won't mention his name because people will remember, well, he mentioned so-and-so from the pulpit. He must be good. And they're in the bookstore and they pick up a book. So unless there's a specific reason, I won't use the name. If, if the text requires it and I have pastoral reason to address it. It's uh, coming up in your church in some way. Yeah, I, I know that the folks are enamored with someone that I was going, let's bring that against what the scripture is teaching. Uh, and and let's, let me instruct you to not feed on that. There's better pasture to feed in than that. Danny? Yes. Uh, often, a few times. As often as I need to. And, I mean, I've got a pretty long grocery list, and, uh, but I always wrap it, I think what Lig points out is important, I always explain why. And uh, I'm more cautious when I'm traveling to speak at different places. I want to honor the pastor there, and he has to clean up any mess that I make. But, um, for example, there was a few years ago when I was at a church, and the book I was teaching through lent itself to this. And so I named Joel Osteen as a heretic. And uh, afterwards, a man came up, and he was hot. Mm. I mean, he was flat-out mad and uh, began to dress me down for what I did and said that I misrepresented him. And so I gave him my card, and I said, well, I'll tell you what. You write me. You tell me where you think I have misrepresented him. And if I have... Uh, I will come back to this church next year and apologize and ask for forgiveness. And I'll write the pastor a letter and uh, explain to him that I was out of bounds and incorrect in my uh, assessment. And uh, he wrote me and I wrote him back line by line where I had not misrepresented Joel Osteen. And so I think you got to make sure your facts are correct. But when you have someone that is extremely popular, that has the potential to do tremendous damage, I think you're derelict in your responsibility if you don't hit that thing head on. I just think you have to. You don't enjoy doing it, but you must do it. And I think you also, when you do it, you want to be careful to... It's easier to just attack a person than it is to say, Here, here's the error, and this is why it's dangerous, and to help show... You want to expose that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I know, I know one time I did a disservice. I, I, did, I, was, I quoted something from Joel Osteen. This was a number of years ago. And I did it. I impersonated him while I did it. And it was just not, it was not, it was just not helpful. Um, you, you got a few memorable. Cheap, you probably got a few cheap laughs, but not pastorally wise. It was not pastorally wise. Yeah. So I would encourage you to not, to not do that. It's, it's about, because it's about truth. Right. And that's, that's the issue here, is that we want the truth sets people free, and we want to make sure that we're, we're orienting people's hearts toward that positions, not people. Yeah. Well, and, and these two, last two comments um, remind me that uh, oftentimes our people really have affection for the folks they're watching or listening to or reading. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they have in some way, they felt themselves benefited by persons. Uh, I, I won't forget the, a young woman in the church in the Cayman Islands. Uh, I was teaching through Wednesday night Bible study, and we were in a particular text that was deeply Trinitarian. And um, I asked a question about some popular preachers who, who are not Trinitarian, and folks were kind of puzzled. And I named a couple, and the young woman went away offended, not knowing that that was the case. And, uh, and in God's providence, a couple weeks later, we had her and her uh, the guy she was courting at the time over for dinner. And uh, she raised the subject. She says, you know, when you, you mentioned this person, I thought to myself, this man has lost his mind. He's crazy. And she said, I went home, because she had a bookshelf full of his books. She said, I went home, and I started looking up some of you. She said, I nearly passed out, you know, when I discovered that, in fact, you, you were right. This is what this guy teaches. 
Um, but her initial reaction was one of defensiveness and anger uh, because she had affection for this teacher. And I think we have to be sensitive yeah. to our people's affections on this issue. Sure. Mark, anything to add? Uh, annually. And um, I think uh, Thabiti's blog post, if you haven't seen it, on what I love about people in prosperity churches is a model of how to deal with people who are sort of lost in error in a loving but very clear way. And I see two Batmen here this morning. Anyway. What about, let's go inside the church, a little bit more ordinary circumstances than that kind of the bad wolf out there. You're watching a young guy who you've given a chance to teach. He's teaching a Sunday school. He's teaching a Sunday night sermon. He says something that's, yeah, that's not helpful. You get up to close the service. Do you say something then and there? Do you just talk to him privately? I know it's going to depend on how egregious it is, but walk us through just some thinking on how do you correct. And this is maybe more your young man you yeah. know, who's talking about I mean, Trinity I have this and all the peanuts. Time, so. What's that? I have this all the time. Okay. I use my Sunday afternoons to let some of the younger fellas loose. And sometimes they say stuff, and it's not right. Again, it's motivation. So unless it's absolutely off the wall, heretical, you know, then you're correcting it straight away. But um, sometimes people, I've done it, misspoken, gone back the next week and said, mm, I said this, and that wasn't clear. I need to clarify that. Um, and so what I will tend to do is talk to them in private and say, listen, I don't think it was helpful. And at the next available opportunity, give him an opportunity rather than me standing up and making him look small. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know that helps. And what's wonderful about that is it encourages a certain kind of humility in the preacher, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and an accountability to what he's taught and to the people that he's taught. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a kind of dignity in where you can, allowing the person to correct it themselves uh, as opposed to just standing up and immediately redressing you know, um, some, some error. Because I, I, I think you're right. We're assuming that in this category, we're not talking about a wolf. Right. But we're just talking about someone who's gotten something wrong. And I love, brother, the way you parsed those categories uh, and helped us think about it. That was excellent. That was good. Can I ask, ask a question? Please. The Eminem the, the peanut illustration. <laughs> where, where, where did you get that? I mean, who, how did it become a part of your repertoire in your early days? It, I, I was, I was only two weeks in, so give us a break. Okay. I went. I, I mean, I went on to eggs and clovers and water and ice and steam. I mean, I've got a few of them. Um, sort of modalistic hit list somewhere. Um, the peanut one. Peanut one. Somebody told me that. I was like, like, saying, oh yeah. I can't, some just some random Christian in the church thought he was doing me a favour. I'm like, what the heck is the Trinity? And he's like. I think that he was eating them. He's like, well, it's like this peanut m and I'm like, well, that sounds pretty cool. That's three in one, one in three, and all that jazz. And I'm like, okay. I'll t that sounds reasonable. I'll take that. Ligon, the early church historian expert, just dying. Sorry, Nick. Right. I apologize. But... <laughs> uh, any other thoughts, brothers, on the younger men who are saying stupid things, but, you know, they're men you're discipling and trying to raise up, and how to... Well, I, it can be older guys sometimes, too, just to be fair. I meant younger guys in the faith who you're trying to raise up as a teacher. You know, Frank was a deacon at our church. Jonathan, you knew him. He had been a deacon since the 1940s. And I had him pray one Sunday morning in 1994 or 1995. He's doing the prayer of praise on Sunday morning in the service, which is a, at our church is a pretty long, formal prayer. And Frank gets up there and he praises God and he begins to thank God for his Christian parents and you know, I mean, his parents, I'm sure, have been deceased for 40 years at this point. And then he says, and, and mom and dad, if you're up there and you can hear me now. And he just started talking to his parents, you know, his, uh, in the middle of the prayer. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't correct him. I didn't say anything about it afterwards. I just figured generally we're, we're all going to make mistakes. And if the basic direction is true, we'll just let, <laughs> Let the river of truth just keep flowing and it'll take care of it. Now, if I started to see people starting to talk to dead relatives during prayers in church, I would then start addressing that. But there, there was absolutely no movement in that direction. For the last 20 years, there's not been another prayer like that, though I, I, though I did not ask for Frank to lead us in prayer again, ever. 
And right. Frank, Frank's now met his parents, and so <laughs> he's fine. He's fine. He can talk with them all he, he wants. Freely. Yeah. He's fine. You do structure and feedback loops. So if an intern had done that, for instance, in the service review, those sorts of things might come in because you already have a context. Correct. That's right. Or is it making a question? Is that when service review began? <laughs> no, it is not. Yeah. Well, and I think that the bigger point there, Mark, I think is, is worth, because I'm sitting here listening, thinking, you know, what's the solution? What do we do? And, and, and to use that sort of cliched illustration, I, I trust you've all heard, you know, at the U.S. Mint, how do they teach people to recognize counterfeits? Well, you, you don't show them counterfeits. You just show them lots of the real, here's the real dollar bill. Here's the real dollar bill. And they get another real dollar bill. And that's how you recognize the counterfeits. You know, the real, so how, how, how do we guard against false teachers? We just teach good stuff. That's a good illustration. I'm lots taking of, that. There it is. I, I got it from Your my... Your cliche is my gold, brother. I got, I got it from my mom. Chally, Chally's has a whole blog post on it. You can find it. Yeah. I got it from Barbara Lehman, my mom. Great. Um, okay, a little, a little bit more. La, la, last one on this. Uh, a little bit more nuanced. How do you deal with individuals in the church who aren't quite young and teachable? They're a little more dogmatic, and they're dogmatic on something that is... Because I've gotten this question from, from a couple of people in here, and it comes up a lot. Dogmatic on something, let's just say the statement of faith doesn't specify, and it's within respectable Christianity, but they are dogmatic and pushing on it. Age of Earth, Millennium, uh, Gifts. Certain, they they, they certain hairstyles. Hairstyles. And they have, maybe they have a small group, maybe they have a Sunday school class. How do, how do, we, how do we deal with this, brothers? Let me, if, if, if someone has what I call a theological agenda that is outside the natural flow of the gospel, even if I agree with them, if that becomes like their mission for conversion, then I'm going to deal with them one-on-one to try to deal with it. Now, if they're stiff-necked and they are unreceptive, I'm going to remove them. And, I, and again, I don't want to put my cards on the table. I, I'm, in, I'm in the popular tradition of eschatology with those who are premillennial and pre-tribulational. That's, that's my eschatology. So the vast majority of your lay people, I think that that's kind of the default position among evangelicals as far as laity is concerned. Um, if someone in my, class, in my church, that's their agenda, and, and to convert everyone into that, even though that's my own position, I'm going to remove them. Because that's not what I want my church to be driven by. I don't want that to be what we're known for. That's not our goal. Our goal is to get the gospel out to the underserved and unreached of, the, of, the, of our community and the nations. So if they have that theological agenda, it could again be, it could be Calvinism. It can be tongues. It can be, we can just start down the line of type of things that might Church fall. discipline? Yes. They think that we just have to be involved in everybody's business. Well, no, we don't. And if that's what you want to do, then you need to go do that somewhere else. You're not going to do that here. And when you say remove them, do you mean from membership? Or do you I mean will remove them initially from teaching. And if they continue to push that agenda, then yes, I think they're now falling into a divisive category, which requires the steps of Matthew 18. I sure do. Or, or Titus 3.10. One yes. a divisive brother once, one a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. And so... Uh, I think what you want to do pastorally is precisely what, what my brother Danny is saying, and maybe helping them with their heart to understand that uh, that's quarrelsomeness. Mm-hmm. That's an argumentativeness that's not committed in Scripture. Um, so whether they are aspiring to be leaders or elders or something, you know, that, that 1 Timothy 3, you know, you, you're not to be quarrelsome. Um, or 2 Timothy 2, 24, that we're to, we're to answer people gently and uh, again, we, we're to be winsome. We want to see repentance where people are in error, but brother, that's actually not your calling. You're not called to be a pastor here. You're not called to shape everyone's theology. Um, and, and all the things my brother just outlined, I think, are, are, are right. John, in a different context, anytime I interview a faculty member here for Southeastern, I will always ask them the question, do you feel like there is a particular theological issue that is just something you feel called to be the champion for? And they'll say, well, why are you asking? And I'll say, well, I need to know, because if there is one that falls outside of uh, helping us fulfill the Great Commission, you're probably not going to be comfortable here. 
I said, we have a wonderful, we have four doctoral statements that guide our school, the Baptist Faith, the Message, the Abstract, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, and the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. That's a pretty narrow theological world. And if you can't be comfortable within that particular framework, then you probably need to be teaching somewhere else. I don't need you here because we think that those issues are clarified that are first tier, uh, and even in some sense second tier by our doctrinal statements, third tier issues, your view of the millennium, other type of thing, view on the gifts, and so on. We, we have room here for respectful, loving disagreement. And, and I think we model that pretty well, and I don't want to see that disrupted. So I will always ask that question of someone that's going to potentially come on our faculty. Since it's come up just now, so divisiveness is one of the, I, when I think about categories for discipline stuff, it's so tricky. Because, I mean, you've got all sorts of specter. You've got somebody who's, like, shaving off, you know, trying to calling out pastors as, you know, false teachers. Or you've got somebody who's consistently pacing, you know, posting stuff on Facebook that's just not helpful for people and gossipy and that kind of stuff. How do you all think about divisiveness and, and discipline and how that, how that works? You warn them. I think 310, again, it's clear. I mean, for, for me... I, you always want to win people. Um, that's your first aim, right? But if you don't win them, you get them telt straight, as we, as we say in Scotland. Get them telt, as I say. Um, you know, I tend to lock them in a room with me and sit down. Oh. I've done this several times and said, look, brother, appreciate you and all that, but, um, but you're not being helpful. You're being harmful. And if you cannot live within the bounds, if you cannot just live within the bounds of what we're trying to do here, then you need to leave. You need to move on. I don't want you to move on. I want you to stay and grow. And I want you to encourage and help baby Christians to grow. But if you continue to, to be divisive, then you need to, you, we, you know, the elders will ask, you know, take it to the church and we'll ask you to leave. I've done that several times. And every single time, every single person has stayed. And in fact, one of those persons who is the most divisive is now one of my best elders. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah, I, I think these brothers are, are sort of lifting up things that help with some of the murkiness that you, you're speaking of. Um, so I think we know we're dealing with divisiveness when someone's elevating usually a, a vastly secondary or tertiary issue to this kind of litmus test for orthodoxy or fellowship and so on. And they are typically doing that, secondly, outside the bounds of your own confessional stance. So this isn't something that you're, you're living and dying with in your statement of faith, or if you've got other kinds of statements like Danvers and so on. This, this, this isn't what the church has sort of staked out as, as cardinal and important. This, this is idiosyncratic in that way. Um, and then thirdly, what, what, is, what tends to be happening in divisiveness it's just as the word implies, there's a wedge being driven bet between people. Um, there's the alienation of affection uh, that's resulting in this. And, and you can feel that, you can sense that. Um, there's a tribalism that's emerging. Um, and yeah, I don't think, I, I think my brother's right, I think it's warn him once, close the door, have a very frank conversation. The only thing I would say is, when you say uh, you need to move on, uh, I, I think what these brothers are probably saying, and I would say, is you need to move on to a church that's like you. In other words, don't take the divisiveness to another church that doesn't intend to be, you know, sort of changed in the way you want to change it. Find a place where you can worship in good conscience or, you know, sort of come in line, and we hope you would come in line, with a, with a sort of proper sense of things as we have defined them as a church. Um, so, go, go to where the leaders agree with you. And they're teaching what you want to teach, or you're teaching. Other thoughts on divisiveness and Garrett's question? The extra urgency of that situation, moving quickly. Anything else, brothers? Back on the teaching question, Don Carson has a, 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 a wonderful insight that he makes that students don't remember what a teacher teaches. They remember what a teacher emphasizes. And so what one of the questions about yeah, what is what you're excited about, what you emphasize in your teaching, that's what, that, that, that makes an impression upon students. <clears throat> and so we ask in the, in the course of interviews, after we've 
ask questions that relate to fidelity to scripture and to the embrace of our stated confessional position, we also ask, do you have any unusual exegetical or theological views? And then we ask, and how do you plan to handle those things? These are typically things that are outside the framework of our... And just to be clear, these are not questions you ask to prospective members of your church. No, this is prospective faculty, faculty members. members. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, 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 you take that over as you're trying to examine who's going to be teaching in Sunday school and things of that nature. And just emphasize that, that in the things that we want emphasized, the things we want you to be excited about, are the things that are the core commitments of our congregation. And if you feel the need to go off on some sort of tangent, we don't want you teaching that. Uh, and that's part of the elder's office to make sure that what's being emphasized in the totality of the teaching of the church. And these things, as Mez emphasized and some others, often happen in small groups and in other places where people are kind of off on their own and they can push their own agenda, you want everything in the church pushing in the same direction of the, of the commonly affirmed biblical beliefs of that local congregation, not what some individual thinks is the important thing for everybody to know and think about. I like the wisdom of Third John. Uh, if you have a diocrephes in your church, clearly this was a man that had influence or he would not have been able to be putting people out of the church and yeah. keeping people from receiving traveling missionaries. So I think part of it, Jonathan, is going to be to what degree are they impacting the fellowship? If it's a small kind of, you know, little thing over here that's not causing a whole lot of trouble, I'll be slower to deal with it. If it's a person that has that personality and has uh, somehow wormed their way into a position of significant influence, then I think you have to deal with it much more quickly. So is, is a question I should, we should ask, just the question of influence? Okay, two people teaching the same wrong thing, but one question I'm going to ask, or emphasizing things that don't need to be emphasized or whatever, just do they have influence or not? If they don't, I can slow down, back up, but if they have influence, I'm going to lean in. Is that, is that a basic criteria to use? Well, I think if they have influence, it, it makes you more urgent, but I think it's the nature of divisiveness to seek influence. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't presume that because right now they don't have any influence, they're not a problem. No, the nature of the thing is they're looking to grow the tribe. A little leaven. Um, yeah, a little leaven. Leaven's a whole loaf. And so I, I, would, I would maybe have a different pace, but I wouldn't have it in a different category. There's a difference between that and quirky people, right? I mean, we've all got quirky people. And I, I mean, I've got a guy who came to my church and... How quirky are they? I mean, they are. Well, I'll tell you. He, um, he's found a biblical reason to wash his hair with honey. Uh, I don't know. And... <laughs> he's quirky. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't think he's going to lead the church down a honey-washing direction or anything. Everyone, he's saved. Everyone thinks he's just a bit quirky. And so... You know. And that's Sorry, I just wanted to share the honey. Mark put you up to that. Yeah. Mark and, put but, you up to that. But that's a different category than device. Yeah, yeah that's certainly. Not, you know, yeah. That's the category of quirky. That's right. Yeah, if I could just say, so, so three, three very different things you might be facing your church about discipline. Adultery, non-attendance, divisiveness. Adultery. Your dangers there are do people agree on the facts? If the facts are agreed upon, if they're not in dispute, particularly about whether or not the adulterous party is repentant, if that is not in dispute, that is one of the easiest cases of church discipline you could face as a congregation. It, it's devastating for the family. It, you, uh, it, you understand what I mean by easy. It can be very straightforward, as painful as it may be in how you pursue it. Non-attendance could well end up being your most common if you adopt that. We certainly in our, our church, that's probably 80% of our discipline cases are non-attendance. Well, that, that could blow your church up if they don't agree with you on that. You might have to teach for a while to help them to see, well, of course we should be committing to each other to attend regularly, and we're going to be way leaning over backwards to be lenient uh, on how long they're non-attending and how complete the non-attendance is. But once we all agree that's a legitimate thing to discipline over, it's not a difficult thing to do. Maybe difficult to get there to have agreement in, in theory, but once you do, it's not that hard a thing to do. 
divisiveness, I think, is like the kind of Mount Everest of church discipline. You know, it's the kind of, in case of emergency, break glass. It's clearly there, Titus 3. I mean, it's certainly there. You have to be willing to do it. But just be aware, pastor, you are potentially wrecking your church when you move toward disciplining for divisiveness because it is so easy subjectively for that to be cast as you, or even if you have elders, you, you group of elders versus this person or this person and his family or his party. So it's, you're, you're in an advanced difficulty level when you're dealing with divisiveness. Doesn't mean you don't do it, but just be very prayerful, all alerts up. This is how Satan blows up churches. So just be very careful reaching for divisiveness because you can be mischaracterized very easily, particularly if you start seeing a lot of divisiveness. So when I see a pastor who's regularly disciplining for divisiveness, he could be right, but I would have some concern that there might be something off in that brother, and I might want to get him out of the pastorate just to kind of give him a break and make sure he's, he's kind of okay. He might be the divisive one. He might be the divisive one. There are also all sorts of steps that you can take short of discipline to address those kinds of, of issues. I'm going to give you one more category, Mark, just 30 seconds of wisdom. You're not going to want to do it, but I've got this question so many times. Pornography, you gave us, yeah. you gave us adultery and then give us yeah. pornography. Yeah, and I think the reason John says I'm not going to want to do it is because it's, um, it, it's such a, a pastoral judgment on where the person is, what you're finding in their life, you know, is this addiction, is this one time, what's the rest of their Christian life like? So I'm not sure how to give much, so would you ever discipline over pornography? Of course you would, you know, but would you always excommunicate for the first use of pornography? No. Uh, Would you ever? Maybe, yeah. Uh, It just, it depends on other circumstances. That one's a bit more like drunkenness. You know, being drunk is different than being a drunkard. And I would just say that, that that takes up a lot of our time pastorally trying to think through the specific cases of that one. Thank you, brother. Any other questions for, from any of you brothers for Mez and his talk and these issues of divisiveness or false teachers or wrong emphases? Anything we've covered in the last 30 minutes towards Mez? I'd just like to say, brother, thank you for serving us so well um, from Titus, teaching us the scripture there, exhorting us. Uh, to courage in so many ways. Um, but the one thing I, and I said this to you already, the one thing I, I especially appreciated uh, along the way was the way in which you were challenging uh, what I'll call a kind of theological paternalism toward poor communities. The, the notion that if you don't read well, then you can't learn well. The notion that if oh, these, are, these are poor folks, they're uneducated, we see so many ways in which their brokenness is on display where wealthy people can hide their brokenness. And, and in view of what we see, we sort of make this judgment that, well, they don't really need all this theology, they don't really need all this teaching, so on and so forth. Uh, and we rob them and we leave them vulnerable still. There's no, there's no, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that most cult groups get their start in poor communities. Um, and so thank you, brother, for lancing that and uh, just speaking right into that. Um, because I, I think God wants all his people to know him well. Uh, and so thank you, brother. Amen. And a big amen to that from rural communities as well. You know, I come from a small town in rural Kentucky, and I went to Duke as an undergrad, and, and the arrogance toward people who were from places like I was was just amazing. And so a line I always tell young preachers is always treat your audience like they're very uneducated and very intelligent. That will work every place you ever, you ever were, are. Treat them like they're very uneducated and very intelligent. It just works. It takes a long time to figure out how to do that well. I'm seriously, that, that takes some practice, right? Anything else? A couple of quick, short answer, clean up questions. And then we thought it might be useful just to get some, some questions from, from uh, people here if, if they have them. Just things that I think are important or kind of part of all of this and make sure we at least touch on it. How much do you say when you bring something to the whole church? Short answers. I know we could talk a lot about that, but just very briefly, how much do you say when you're bringing a case before the church? Enough to make gossip difficult. 
like you don't want to give so little information that everybody's going to fill in all the details. You just want to make things really clear and and I think help understand why it's it's come to such a point that we feel like everybody needs to know. So you want to, yeah. I'll take maybe one more on that. I'm going to push on. Yeah, I, I think enough to establish the case and so that in Mark's example of adultery, for example, people are confident that um, the adultery has happened, that it, it's unrepentant, enough to establish the credibility of the elders that they have done due diligence and, and are familiar with the case, uh, and enough, therefore, for the congregation to take its responsibility to take the action that you're calling them to yeah. in good conscience. And I heard Matt Chandler say last night, only indisputable facts. I think that's true. Okay, uh, what do you say to the church about how to interact with the former, the, the person who has been excluded. So Paul was such a person, do not even eat. Mark, for instance, what did you say a few Sunday nights ago to the church? Well, I just before that, it's interesting. If you, if you add up all the phrases and you put them next to each other in the New Testament, they don't all say the same thing. It's like there's a spectrum. It's kind of like Christology. You know, you, you, it's, this is error, this is error, but right in here you're good. Uh, it's kind of like that with how you deal with the person who's been put out. You clearly, I think the, the commonality is you do not treat them as a Christian. So if they're a member of your family, you still relate to them as a family member. It's not Mennonite shunning, but you do not treat them as a Christian. That's the, that's the essence of it. You love them. You want them to repent. You want them to come to Christ. Anything to add on that? I like what I quoted MacArthur saying, I will seek out opportunities to minister to them and try to seek restoration and reconciliation, but I'm not going to be hanging with them. So I'm not going to go to ball games with them. I'm not going to go to whatever you enjoy doing. I'm not going to be doing that uh, because that gives the appearance, I think, of condoning what they've done. I'm looking for opportunities to love them well and minister well to them to seek their restoration. Briefly, how should we respond to threats of a lawsuit? So somebody threatened, I had a phone call the other day, if you take my son to that level, I'm filing a lawsuit. I don't get that, so. I, I, I would just refer back to Lee's comment last night, contact your local Presbyterian pastor, ask to borrow a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> You, you want to have your documents in order. You want to teach people before that you allow them to be a member of your church that you do this so that when they join, they're giving consent to this. You want to make sure your documents are lined up for this. If you have very old Baptist documents, they should be well lined up for this because Baptists were famous for doing this all the time. Greg Will's book, uh, Democratic Religion, shows that the average Baptist church in Georgia from the Revolution to the Civil War excommunicated 2% of its membership every year. And the average Baptist church in Georgia during those years grew at twice the rate of the population growth. So it's not just an increasing population. No, they were actually evangelizing because people could tell it made a difference to be a Christian. Um, so if you really want to evangelize, look into church discipline. Anything else on threats of, of lawsuits? Expect them and, and, and expect them in terms of church discipline. So this, is, this goes back to what Mark said in the very first message. Don't, don't be surprised when those things come your way. Paul told you they were coming. Jesus told you they're coming. So be ready for them. And then be ready, as Mark just said. And it is good to have good counsel on hand because you, hopefully we will know what we're supposed to do in terms of our responsibility to Jesus and his word and spiritual shepherding in the church. We won't always be experts in what we need to do on the civil legal side. And we need godly people who can help us on that side think those things through, who have a respect for the spiritual authority of the church and an agenda that is consistent with the spiritual authority of the church. Very often, um, a, a lawyer wants to think about how to get you off, you know, out of a, out of a tough spot and isn't really concerned uh, about whatever else it is that you're doing. And those things can, there can be conflict in that when you're trying to work through hard issues. So you need someone who has a respect for the spiritual purposes and authority of the church. You'll be kept legally most safe by just quitting your ministry. Yeah. Make sure you have no public ministry. Lawyers might try to manage you into that. And that's where you have to just decide, you know what, I'm going to risk jail. 
or a fine uh, in order to keep speaking the truth. But you need to make those decisions intelligently because you can needlessly put yourself or your church in jeopardy. Uh, one, one other category of difficulty, and we're only giving kind of chapter titles here, and, and just to say, hey, look, there's chapters to read on this. Any quick pastoral thoughts on dealing with discipline with situations of mental health issues or even a person who's talked about suicide in the past, you know, do you keep pushing anyway? Any pastoral wisdom yeah, here? You have to be extremely careful. So again, about 90% of the people in my church who've got problems, a huge proportion of them have underlying mental health issues with a degree of severity, obviously, there's a spectrum. And um, we have supremely severe cases where they get some of one of my members gets sectioned. We call it sectioned. You get uh, into a high security committed at least three times a year because she can't function. And she is a godly Christian woman, but she is just so mentally she cuts her, her digits off and drills holes into her head. And um, but when she's in moments of mania and has to be committed. And so we've worked out a, a, a way of care with her um, that she definitely, she's definitely born again. But um, she's, it's just, it's chronic. Um, and we just have to do our best. We just have to cope and do our best in the situation. There's no easy answer to that. I mean, that's one at the extreme end of the spectrum. And we, we have others down the list and where we... Um, our church, in our communities where more charismatic Christians would say, well, you've throw away your medicine, you've been healed. Um, our church says, speak to your doctor. Get professional medical help. Do not throw away anti antipsychotic medication. <laughs> um, uh, or, or what you're taking. Is it good that you're on these things? I don't know, but you need long-standing ongoing care we can provide care for the soul we can provide community and family but we've got to make sure they're seeing proper professionals particularly at those levels of, of chaos and Jonathan the reporting issues on suicide are just as important as reporting issues in terms of child abuse and such so you need to know what the state reporting requirements are when somebody comes into your office and says I'm going to harm myself and that there again, it's good to have somebody, either a mental health professional or someone else that's familiar with the ethics requirements and the legal requirements there to know about reporting. And then who you can say things to and who you can't say things to about that. Yeah, with just these last couple of things, we're talking about areas where most pastors just need to humbly recognize they're out of their depth and they're out of their area of expertise and not act as if their spiritual authority, in fact, equips them to handle these other kinds of things. It doesn't. And so just to be humble and acknowledge that and learn and have people who are resources for you. But on the issue of mental illness, I think we have to have a category settled in our minds that one can be a Christian and have mental illness. And, and there are many people who aren't settled on that. Um, and whether they're charismatics or others, it's and they have unhealthy spiritual approaches to that. So A, I think you have to have that category. B, I, my brother is right, I think you've got to know something about what's required in the way of referrals. And it's just wise of you before you're in that situation to go ahead and familiarize yourself with what's in the community in terms of resources that you can make referrals to uh, and the like. And to be I think it's fair to say that a person like that, if it's severe at all, would, would never be the object or almost never be the object of church That's discipline. Just, That's where in, I was In going. any corrective final sense. They're just going to be the object of love and care and bearing with them. Yeah, so you're dealing with weakness, not wickedness. Now, it may be, it may be that the mental illness actually um, drives the person toward um, some criminal things or things that are harmful to, uh, to others. Or harassment of church members. We, right. I, we have a, a, a woman uh, in the congregation who is delusional, and she has a fantasy about one of my elders and makes up stories about him all the time and sends me um, you know, Facebook messages and, and other things making allegations that are completely impossible. 
And so we, and, and, and almost every congregation has folks right. like that, and right. you have to figure out how to manage that. So I totally agree with what you said. I, when I was in Cayman, uh, a, a lovely young woman, an attractive young woman, uh, accused me of having uh, a relationship with her. Um, and she was just completely out of touch with reality. My wife needed to know immediately. All the elders needed to know immediately. And we had to work through a plan for how to care for this sister and how to protect the pastor. Um, and so, yeah, these, these are... But, but you're dealing there with weakness, not wickedness. But there, are, um, there, are, there, are, there are other instances. So, obviously, I have quite a lot of people with mental illness in the congregation. I mean, it's only a small church, but proportionally, it's high. Um, some of them... So I've had some who are very mentally ill. They've come, we've t- tried to take care of them, but then they become aggressive, and then they put not just other members, but other ill people at risk. And at that point, you step in very quickly. You know, I've had people arrested um, and said, "This is. We appreciate you're not well, but this is unex- This level is unacceptable." And so we've we've moved them. We have about 20 minutes. Well, before the next talk. I thought we had a little bit more, but that's fine. It, let's, are we let's supposed to, is the next one at 1130, 11.30? 11.30? Okay. Um, friends, we'll do this for a very few minutes. Just if it's worth it. If it's not, you get a little bit of a break. Um, if you have a question that we've not addressed, and it cannot be a very complicated issue of church discipline. That's just not going to work. Specifics in your church. This happened and this happened. But if you have something you think could be of general usefulness that we've not touched on, Big Lyle is standing right here. He has a microphone. You can come forward now. Uh, just be aware if you start, and I, and I listen, I don't think it's going to be publicly useful. I'm going to try to be a good suit of our time. I'll just, I'll just move it along. I'll say, I don't think we can do that. But throw it up. You might get some help. So maybe only one person out of all these, but just form a line right here by Lyle. All right, so Heath, right? Heath is first, so everybody behind Heath, it's going, the line's going that way, and we'll see what we can do. We'll try to get with these uh, quickly. Lyle, go. Heath? Okay, so if you're in a church that's never had, never, they're unfamiliar and, with and church. And Heath, feel free and direct this to one person if you want to in particular. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> it's good to know, too. Okay, you teach, you disciple, you, you train your leaders. They recognize you've been teaching through Scripture. They know it's biblical. But you're in a small town, and they're absolutely not going to do it because they want to keep the peace. You've got this gap between, yeah, you know what ought to be, and they know what ought to be, but there's a big gap between what is and what ought to be. Where do you go from there? I mean, this is not like the first year. This is four, five, six years into something. So you've been the pastor there six years. I've been the pastor there four years. Four years. But I've seen this in, in other churches I've pastored what's the too. this? The, the pattern of, yeah, I know that's true, but we're not going to do it. Yeah. On the part of the whole church. On the part of your leaders, even your church as well. Yeah. We're not going to change our membership role. We're not going to put people under discipline that... Yeah. Yeah, we know it's true. The rural, so I pastored in seven and a half years in a small 10,000-person oil town in West Texas. And that's, that's it. You, this is not what churches do, you know. And I think it just takes a lot of, you have to pray that the congregation would have courage. Because really it comes down to cowardliness. And I mean that in the, in the, in the best way. It comes down to cowardliness. That there is a stand that needs to be made for the name of Christ in our community. And it's kind of this cyclical thing where if all the churches agree to not do church discipline, I mean, that's how the gospel just gets sucked out of a community. And at first, the church probably will be looked at as weird and cultish and all those kinds of things. But in the end, we answer to Jesus and you have to be faithful. But and if they keep saying no, you'll, you'll keep pastoring there for 10, 15 years, 20 years, you'll yes, keep going. Because you have to answer to Jesus as well. You can continue to try to lead them in that direction, and you have to be wise and patient, and there's, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. But pray for them to have courage. Yeah. It, I, I, would, I would say uh, if your leadership is resistant, keep teaching the whole congregation. Your congregation may end up happy actually helping you with your leadership. That's what happened with me. My leaders were very proud of the fact that they did not do discipline. 
and it was church members coming up to them and saying, well, so-and-so is in the newspaper as having committed a financial fraud. What are you going to do about it? So it wasn't their pastor saying to the elders, brothers, we've got to do something. It was congregation members coming and saying, what are you going to do about it? And there was a big generational shift on that. Older folks said, we just don't do that. That's not how we do things. Younger folks saying, are we going to be consistent with who we say we are? So I was helped by specific things that happened and then other people in the congregation going to the elders and saying, what are you going to do? And then the elders would come to me and I said, that, that's what I've been talking about. What are we going to do? And then we sit down, we get to work. So I'd pray that that would happen, that the Lord would raise up those kinds of things, raise up congregation members who are saying what you've been saying, but it's not you. It's, it's not you going and whispering in their ears to go say it. It's that they've just opened their Bible. They've read their Bible. They see what's happening. They want to see their officers leading in a godly way. It's precisely what happened to me when I was in the Cayman Islands, small island nation, 55,000 people to- total, seven by 22 miles. Um, everybody's related to each other. Small town dynamic. Nobody wants to put uncle so-and-so out or cousin so-and-so out. Um, the congregation was ahead of the eldership in their willingness to consider this. We had a former deacon in an open adulterous relationship. Um, and we had another sort of high profile situation that really couldn't be avoided. And um, do pray for that. Pray for that situation. Pray for courage. Meanwhile, be patient. Keep teaching. Be patient. Keep teaching. So he'd pray, teach. And honestly, I think the only thing I'd add is if you find yourself beginning to become embittered, you don't need to stay there. Go to another church and and pray they can find a a good pastor who will keep praying and teaching. Yep. Sorry. First of all, I just... Name again. uh, Name? All right, so Stu. My name is Stu. Um, Kind of first of all, um, being a new Christian, I want to thank this conference, man. I've never seen anything like this. Stu, how long have you known the Lord? Uh, Christ saved me last year in March. Praise God. Um, And... Um, so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for this conference and just the flow. Um, Mez, Mez and everyone. Um, this is more so a practical question. Um, just me being a new believer, my wife, Christ saving her through our marriage, got married last year. Um, dealing with personal weakness in my own heart of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness and selfishness and a love for the gospel, grasp with theology practically how do how how do you handle like the uninformed sheep like my wife practically with my wife how do i handle kind of practically walking that out with my wife understanding patient kind of how, how do okay. i okay got the question that might be better dealt with personally but mez do you have anything you can give of just general counsel yeah i mean titus is titus again is brilliant because he goes on to say this is how you do it i mean we call it one up one down discipleship Go, if you're a young Christian, go to an older Christian. Go to an older couple. I mean, I learned how to treat my wife well. I had no family from a Christian couple who were my friends, older. I watched them. I questioned them. I asked them questions. They challenged me if I was, you know, out of line or, or whatever. And then as I grew older, I took on board baby Christians. One up, one down, we call it in Nidri discipleship. And I think the best thing you can do is find a good, godly, mature Christian. Don't find someone who's in the same boat as you, because that's not going to help you. Find somebody who is ahead of the game. So are you, you in a good church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, okay. and sit, sit and learn under godly people. And that's the best advice I can give you. Great. Thanks, man. Yep. Yes. Guys, we have time for maybe two or three more if they're quick. Yes. This is for... Uh, Name? Uh, Justin. Yes. Um, what church? Uh, Forestville. Um, uh, you talked a little about um, excommunication, but um, I was wondering, um, once that happens, someone's been r- removed from the roles, um, how do you practically remove them from the church if they're not willing to leave? You, you don't want to. You want them attending. So you want them regularly attending, hearing God's word. Yeah. Yep. Unless, unless in an unusual situation they're causing divisiveness and their, their physical presence is causing trouble, which would rarely be the case. My name is Adam Langer from Park Baptist in Rock Hill. And my question is regarding politics and discipline. Um, if, if someone openly 
supports and promotes the agenda of a leader who openly and repentantly um, supports the violation of God's law, abortion, uh, re redefinition of marriage. Are, is that um, support a big enough issue to ever involve discipline? If not, how do you address that in the church body? I'm ready to answer, but anybody else? Oh, no, 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 I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be the last one on this. I'm not happy to be the first one. First and last. Um, Adam, I, th I think you have to realize that uh, in the kind of government that we have, whoop, where'd Adam go? Adam, in the, in, in the kind of government that we have, um, somebody can have a, a position on abortion and it makes zero difference in the laws of our land for 40 years, whether or not they're in favor or opposed. Now, I'm not saying that their position itself is not a moral issue, but I'm just saying as far as affecting what happens. And if you're not careful, then you're saying the issues that they really can make a difference on, you're forbidding Christians to vote on the basis of those issues. So I would just counsel you that government is far more complicated than that. Now, it's very different. If somebody in your congregation is advocating abortion is a good thing. Well, that's a different issue. But if you're merely talking about supporting a candidate whose views on abortion you disagree with, I would just have a longer conversation with you about how government works and how if, if you're not careful, and increasingly it's going to be this way, you will find no candidates for public office who do not do something the Bible condemns. And what our government is based on is compromise between a lot of competing parties. So Christians can participate in that. You can consider that morally compromised if you want. And, and Timothy George says he prays for forgiveness every time he pays his taxes. You know, but you can, you can participate in that. But if you think you can participate in that with no compromise, it's, that's only your ignorance. It's only because you don't know enough about how the government works. So if you've thought, oh, I've always voted only for pure candidates who always please God in everything they advocate, I don't think that happens. Um, so that, that, that's maybe a longer conversation. Anybody want to clean up any messes I just made? Well, I, I think the, the next step is what if you have political officers in your congregation that are actively advocating for things that are against God's word. Interestingly, the Eastern Orthodox Church excommunicated Michael Dukakis during his presidential campaign a decade or so ago because of his position on abortion, being yeah. out of accord with the Eastern Orthodox Church. So at the Roman Catholic Church will sometimes do this, depending on the diocese, depending on the political figure, with folks that are advocating things that are against Roman Catholic canon law and ethics. So uh, I, I do think that is a, that's, a, yeah, that's one step down the road for pastors to think about. Yeah, if you actually have the politician themselves as a member of your church and what they're advocating is false, you have a whole closer degree of responsibility then. There's, a, there's an article at ERLC I wrote called, Should Pastors um, Support Specific Candidates? Which kind of deals with the whole theology of this and discipline and how do we uh, endorse certain candidates or not. And I, I give my answer. They actually pitted someone against me who said the opposite is me. So you see the debate on both sides. But ERLC.org. Or a good short book to read, only four chapters. It's by Robert Benny, B-E-N-N-E. -N -N -E. Good and bad thinking about religion and politics. Good and bad thinking about religion and politics. Superb little book. Uh, my name's Brian um, with Redemption Church and Apex. Um, just some general guidance as far as resources and... Um, with new churches, how soon to set up those foundations. Um, you, I know you don't want to set it up when you're already in the middle of it, but. Um. Uh, Thabiti, you've just begun a church this year. Yeah, we try to do it right from the start. I, as part of what Mark was saying earlier, part of what you want your members to understand is that this is a practice, that part of what it means for them to join the church is to uphold the discipline of the church, um, to receive the discipline of the church. We pray it's not the case, but if, if so, that's, that's an expectation. Um, we're covering bases right now with attorneys uh, to make sure our documents are suitable um, for sort of you know, withstanding as best as possible, lawsuits and things of that sort. Um, yeah, I think you, if you're a new church or getting started out, I think you want to be working on this, getting this settled as soon as you can. And that's actually the perfect time to, right from the beginning. 
I'd also say if you're revitalizing a church, one of the first things you want to do is change the way that you bring members in. So if, if the church used to be like, who wants to be a member? Come on down. Well, welcome. Anybody have any problems? Nope. Are right, you're in. That's a terrible way to bring members in. You want to change the way. You will kill way. your church that way. Yes. Your membership policy and your marriage policy are the very first two you better yeah. make sure are in order. Uh, my name is Clint. I'm a Summit member um, here in, in the Triangle. Um, divorce in the church, how do you discipline a couple that is go- seeking a divorce, but they're unwilling to reconcile their marriage? Well, if it has biblical grounds, you don't discipline. If they don't have biblical grounds, you potentially, not always, do. Let me just state those two principles there, and you guys, if you want to add a nuance. Again, particularly for young pastors in the room, old pastors know this. For young pastors, questions of divorce and remarriage are the most complicated things you will deal with on an eldership, bar none. They're like a a level of magnitude more complicated than anything else because the, the, the complicating factors that can, they're not always there, but the complicating factors that can be there are without number. And you learn that on an eldership as you sit around and pray and think and talk. One of those rare occasions where Presbyterians can be a help to Baptists is in this area. Um, And uh, so I would commend to you the PCA has a study paper on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that is very helpful in this area. It's pretty long. It's got a lot of resources it's it's actually pretty helpful. Where do you find that? Is it PCA? Uh, you can you can I think you can go to what pca.net or whatever the website is and find position papers, PCA position papers and the various position papers that have been produced by the General Assembly over the years are housed there, but it's found in PCA position papers, the study committee on marriage, divorce and remarriage. Yeah, I I can't commend that kind of study enough to get those categories in place in the eldership's thinking so that when you have an actual case, which will invariably, because of its complexity, challenge your categories. Um, I I just can't commend that enough to to sort of learn from the good thinking of others as preparation for when the live case comes. You've got shared categories. You know what your church's position is and hopefully have, have written it. Uh, on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and now you're just sort of sifting through this case with those lenses. Uh, and, and that better equips you, I think, to handle the complexity and to deal with the nuance and to, to sort of make the exceptions, uh, when you, which you will have to do uh, from time to time. So with our eldership, we had special meetings for years where we just discussed the issue of, of divorce and remarriage without a particular case in front of us exactly so we could think through the principles and see if we agreed upon the principles biblically. Garrett was a part of those conversations. Jonathan was a part of those conversations. And even places we didn't agree. We figured, okay, these are areas we don't agree so that when I'm counseling an individual member, I know I can stand and say, we think this or, well, my advice to you on this, you know. I think we've been of minimal help, but we'll take that. Okay, yep, last one. (laughs) I'm Dustin from Glorietta Baptist Church in Concord. Uh, my question is on discipline, church discipline in children, um, and when is that appropriate? Is it appropriate to discipline through the children's parents, and how would you go about doing that? Ligon? <laughs> hey, man, you baptize them. You baptize them. So do you. <laughs> well, we don't, you, but, uh, yeah. You probably baptize more children than the PCA in the Southern Baptist Convention. So. <laughs> Not Capitol Hill Baptist Church, but uh, other churches, yeah. Well, it, it, the, I mean, this, this, is a diff, this is a difference between Presbyterian and Baptist polity. In, in, uh, in Presbyterian polity, there, there are categories of communing and non-communing members. Obviously, you can't excommunicate a non-communing member. So the way you go about discipline is through the category of admonition in that context. Now, in, in a Baptist setting, you consistently deal with everyone in both the categories of, of admonition and potentially excommunication. So depending on how early that child had been, and that's what I was referring to, Baptist baptism ages have dropped, 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 dropped. And, and that actually raises problems when you're trying to deal with teenagers that are going through the normal 
teenage rebellion and doing things that are completely inconsistent with a Christian testimony, does the church then need to step in and, um, and engage in a process that would lead to excommunication? So that, that, is, that, in my opinion, is good counsel to all of us, Presbyterians and Baptists, to be very careful about young age professions of faith. You, you drive the Baptist car so well, Ligon. I mean, you speak Baptist so well. Okay, but if you're in, but if you're in that situation, how would you counsel the brother? So, like, if he's, if, if so, you, are you saying like if you've if you've taken a ten year old into membership in your church, which I which I would not encourage you to do, but if you took a ten year old into membership of your church, then do you replace the parents? So basically, are you saying does the church discipline instead of the parents? Long, there you go. My question is, would it be appropriate to discipline the parents because of the actions of the child? Would it, would it be okay to not in call the, new, the Not in the New Covenant. No. <laughs> I don't think so, yeah. I suppose not. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of an That's exception to that. That's where admonition would come in. You certainly would go to the parents if they are having difficulty to try to minister and help. Sure. But I don't think it would rise to the category. It just has to be so egregious off the scale yeah. for me to think of exercising eventually excommunication. One of the problems with Baptists admitting as church members, people who are still in the home under the authority of their parents, is you're then confusing whose authority they're under. And that's why I think Baptists in the 19th century knew better than Baptists in the 20th century, and Baptists around the world know better than Baptists in America today. And we should just listen to our Baptist brothers and sisters around the world and in history and, and stop it with the, with the baptizing five-year-olds. I understand five-year-olds can be saved. I, I got that. I have no question about that. God, the Holy Spirit is amazing, you know. But it's a different thing about a public attestation so that the person then moves to be a member, a communing member of the church and then has a, has a, is under the discipline of the church directly. I, I, would, I would caution you against that.